first scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 5. We'll begin at verse 12. And Luke writes that while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about Jesus spread all the more. So the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This is one of those stories that demonstrates just how far God is willing to go to reach us, to connect with us, to know us, to be with us. Because at the time of Jesus, leprosy was unclean. It was the sort of thing that separated you from worship in the temple. If you had leprosy, you weren't allowed to go to church. If you touched someone with leprosy, you weren't allowed to go to church. So here comes this man with leprosy. And we see other people with leprosy in the Bible, right? In in the Old Testament, we see the prophet heal Naaman. He says, you know, go to the, the river and wash seven times. But Jesus heals leprosy with a touch. Jesus, in healing this man, rendered himself ritually unclean and unfit for the temple. This is the sort of love that God has for us, that he would come into the world and would become unclean so that we might be cleansed, so that we might experience the life in God. And this is good. We don't serve a God who sits on high and expects us to climb, uh, you know, broken glass covered ladders to try to work our way up to his feet. But instead, we have a God who comes down into the muck and mire and embraces uncleanness so that we might be cleansed. One of the practices of the early church was consistent, multiple times a day, prayer facing Jerusalem. So, um, you know how our, uh, you know how those who practice Islam, five times a day, they face east, they uh, pray in a prostate position. Uh, words that they've that that are are consistent. Muhammad got all of that from Syrian Christians in the fifth century. Like none of this is an invention of Islam. Like the early church, this was their practice to have these times of of prayer consistently through the day, 
that would connect them with God, that would reorient them to what God is doing in their lives. Because I don't know about you, but I find that it is really easy right about one o'clock in the afternoon to uh, get really cranky and be completely oblivious to what God may be doing in my life. Am I alone in this? I am. Shouldn't have confessed it. One of the ways that, that Christians throughout the centuries have stayed in relationship with God, with the God who had come down from on high and enter into our filth, is through this practice of consistent prayer. At the time of, of Jesus, it would be expected that rabbis would pray three or four times a day at consistent hours. Typically the ninth, twelfth, and and what is it, 15th hour. And we have to expect that Jesus likely did the same thing. And here in Luke chapter 6, I think we see something interesting in the way that Jesus did it. Because after healing the man with leprosy, Luke tells us that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. You know, in this world where we have this constant humming and buzzing and distraction all around us, we have to purposefully find lonely places to pray. Quiet places to pray. Places without distraction. Because distraction is everywhere. But if we want to follow the example of Jesus, if we want to experience the sort of life that is, that is completely just bathed in the knowledge and the presence of God, this is a grace. Learning how to find just 10 minutes a day where we find a lonely place and we stop and we listen, and we pray to God. So we are going to uh, run an experiment the next three weeks. Is everyone excited for an experiment? Yeah, experiments. Woo! That's what I'm talking about. All right. Uh, this experiment we will run for the next three weeks. Uh, after the language of Luke, we are calling the daily withdrawal. Not withdrawal, which would be like, you know, being, you know, cranky because you haven't had coffee in three days, but withdraw this idea of getting out of our normal routines, out of our normal patterns, and finding for just 10 minutes a day a lonely, quiet, non-distracted place to reset and reorient our lives to be aware of God's presence. So there's going to be a QR code on the screen. I need you all to pull out your phones. You're going to get your, uh, your camera app going. And then if you put that on the QR code, 
you may have to zoom in, you will have the opportunity to add daily withdraw to your calendar. Here. Here, that's if, if, if you're in the back and you can't zoom in far enough, you may want to try the one on the back wall. What do you mean? No, it's not. I got daily withdrawal. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. So, uh, it is in here um, at 7 a.m. to 7.10 a.m. I'm going to suggest that you change it. Um, because I don't know about you, but if I am awake at 7 o'clock, I have not yet forgotten that God is present and God is with me. So I would uh, encourage you to take uh, this calendar event and edit it and move it to some time later in the day. So, you know, 1.15, 2.45, about that time that, that, that you start to feel the, the, uh, the crankies rolling in. And then set that and uh, make it a, a daily repeating event through Easter. So we are going to be running this experiment for the next three weeks. And if it goes well, you can continue doing it forever. But my sense is that if we just add this 10-minute period each day where we intentionally get away from what we're doing, get out of the flight plan that we're on, step away, find a moment of seclusion, pray, and uh, in here there's a, uh, there's a link. I should have said that. I should have remembered to say that earlier. So there's a link here, gctrinity.org daily withdrawal. Uh, if you click the link, it'll take you to um, the, the, a, a liturgy that you can use for this 10-minute this time. Um, now, what this is and what this is not. So the daily withdrawal is not uh, what you may have uh, formerly thought of as like quiet time or daily prayer time or, or your daily devotional time. I know a lot of you are faithful uh, getting up early and doing your devotions or doing them before bed and continue doing that. But this is designed to intentionally bring us back to the awareness of the presence of God in our lives sometime in the middle of our day. And I suspect that if we do this, if we uh, commit ourselves to this daily midday time of connecting with God, of, of reorienting ourselves to the awareness of God's presence in our lives, that we will experience a positive change in our lives coming into Easter. So are we excited about this experiment? Yes. This will be good. This will be fun. We are going to uh, experience something new. God is going to use it to bless us and move within us, and I am I'm quite excited. We'll jump forward to Luke chapter 6. And Luke writes that on another Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. 
The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them, and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So it's interesting. Um, this is one of those passages that living in the United States in the 21st century, we miss some of the context of what's going on. Um, but in the ancient Near East, and still in many parts of the world today, you have your clean hand, which you interact with society with, and you have your unclean hand, which you don't touch anything with, except to do unclean things. You get my drift. So Luke tells us that the man's right hand was shriveled, which is the hand that he is supposed to interact with society with, which meant that he was finding himself consistently in incredibly awkward social situations. Does he use his unclean hand or does he go without? It would be incredibly offensive to eat in front of someone with your unclean hand. But what choice did he have? You, he can't use his clean hand it would be incredibly offensive to pass something to someone with your unclean hand, but what choice does he have? So here we see Jesus on the Sabbath, and as we know, the Sabbath is important to Jesus. The Sabbath is important to God. The Sabbath is not something that we just disregard. And the religious leaders think they have Jesus in a trap. What's he going to do to this guy? Absolutely change his life? Give him the opportunity to interact in society in a way that isn't incredibly shameful? Or keep the Sabbath? What is Jesus going to do? He's already touched the leper. He's already shown that he is willing to take on ritual shame and filth and disgust, will he also break the Sabbath 
in order to bring healing to this man. And he does. Once again, we see the lengths that God is willing to go to to bring healing and wholeness to our lives. And then Jesus goes by himself to the mountain to pray. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Jesus understands the limits of his humanity. Because while Jesus is fully divine, he's also fully human. The same need that we have to get away and reorient ourselves and reconnect and and put ourselves in the place where we are aware of the presence of God, we see Jesus doing the same thing. Because even though Jesus is fully divine, he still has this, this is my sense of it at least, he still has this same tendency that we do that in the middle of the day he can get cranky and become disoriented. But Jesus prays. Jesus gets away. Jesus does what he must in order to stay deeply rooted in the presence of his Father. So, a bit of uh, Bible trivia here. According to the creation narrative that begins at Genesis 1-1 and ends in Genesis 2-3, how many days does it take for God to create the world? Everyone, I'm impressed. You all said six. No one said seven. Well done. Huh? He rested on the seventh. Exactly right. Like the, the, the creation narrative, the way the story is told, it establishes this rhythm for all of creation. That for six days we work and for one day we rest. For one day we, we stop in order to to be reminded that we aren't the ones that keep the world spinning. In order to be reminded that that God is on his throne and that God provides for us, it's not something that we create on our own. Yeah, I... I have historically not been a very good Sabbath keeper. Um, just, just don't like it. I don't like stopping. You know what I mean? You know, like, like when, when you do work that you enjoy, it's hard to stop working. But here, um, in the last you know, several months, I've really tried to be more intentional with it. And, and what I find is that it's the, the Sabbath rest that God calls me to, it's, it's 
it's not even so much about work as it is about getting away from the constant, the constant devouring of information. Because a, a big part of, of what I do here at Trinity and, and what I do in the rest of my life is taking in information, is figuring out, you know, what God may be saying to us this week, is figuring out what is uh, the, next, uh, the next program that we may want to, to embark on, uh, how we can overcome some obstacles that we're facing for ministry. A lot of it is information-driven. So much so that, you know, like, there is no nine to five to it, right? Like, like th- there can be information that I read at one o'clock in the morning, you know, while I'm, I'm scrolling that, you know, ends up making uh, its way into the life of our church. So what I've been trying to do is trying to take information Sabbaths. Right, like not reading, not uh, getting on the internet to explore new things, not not doing social media. And frankly, it was terrifying at first because I had this fear that I would be missing out on that one thing that I really, really needed, and if I didn't do it, then you know things would go kaput, and God wouldn't love me anymore which is nonsensical. And what I've learned in this season of of taking these intentional information Sabbaths is that God's love for me is not dependent on me finding the right piece of information at the right time. Sabbathing is important. Jesus is not saying that Sabbathing is unimportant here. But what he is saying is that God's love for us, God's desire to bring us wholeness, God's desire to save us, God's desire to heal us, knows no limits. There is no brick wall around God's love that God can't break through in order to reach out to us. Skipping forward to chapter 9, Luke writes that when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with them, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida, But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. And he replied, You give them something to eat. And they answered, We only have five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, which there were about 5,000 men. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50. And the disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. 
Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who did the crowd say that I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. Once again, we see Jesus' ministry being empowered by his life of prayer. We see it's in one of these times where he has withdrawn, where he has gotten away, where he's found seclusion, where he has uh, reconnected in the most intimate way with the Father that leads into the time of feeding the multitudes. And then he goes and he prays once again, quietly, by himself. And then ask the disciples, who do you say that I am? And the correct answer is the Messiah, the Christ. The one who God has sent into the world to bring healing and reconciliation. The one who we can put our trust in wholly. And he invites us into times of intimacy into a loving relationship where we hear his voice, where he hears our prayers, where we are connected. And honestly, the, um, it, it, it may not feel great the first time. As you do this uh, time of daily withdrawal, uh, part of it is sitting in silence, which is downright painful if you haven't done it before. We are so used to buzzing and humming and just constant flashing lights and distractions that to find a quiet corner and sit silently for any period of time feels so incredibly foreign. It's not what we're used to. It's not what our lives have become. But if we commit to this practice, if we find ourselves doing it, if we find ourselves finding a quiet place to sit in quietly Listen for God. We will experience a new kind of spiritual maturity that we haven't before. In the Old Testament, we see God's presence being displayed in, in different ways. With um, We see God um, in fire, the burning bush that is not consumed. We see God come in, in storms like on Mount Sinai. But we also see God 
come in the sound of silence, as with the prophet Elijah. What uh, some of our older translations called the still small voice of God, the whisper after the tempest. In this world that we live in, that there is constantly noise, that there's constantly distractions, that there's constantly squirrels. Finding times to block it all out, to sit in silence in the presence of God, is, I mean, it's, it's downright countercultural. It's not the way that the world teaches us to operate, but it is the way God teaches us to operate. It is the way that God desires to connect with us, even more so here in the 21st century. So my prayer is that here, over these next three weeks, leading into Easter, we figure out how to do it. And I'm not going to lie, it's going to be hard. I don't know about you, but there are three boys under six years old in my house. There is a 90 decibel hum all the time. It never ends. Ever. It's going to be hard to find a silent spot for 10 minutes. But the effort's worth it. Sitting them in front of the electronic babysitter for 10, 10 minutes and sitting out in my car is going to be worth it. Because God can speak to us in those silent, still, non-distracted places. God can speak new life into us. God can heal us. God can transform us and work within us. And I'm excited for what this season holds for us. I think if we commit to this for the next three weeks, if we, if we take advantage of this opportunity that God has called us into, into these times of daily withdrawal, that I think we will, by the end of it, be seeing God working in a way that he hasn't before. And that's exciting. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we embark on this new journey, this new practice... Lord, we pray that you would meet us there. That as we embrace this midday time of getting away, of cutting away the distractions, of being present with you, of reorienting ourselves to your presence in our lives, Lord, that it will make a huge difference. Lord, we trust that you will not squander the effort we make to keeping these daily times of withdrawal. 
Lord, may we experience the same excitement as the man who was healed. That as we become more and more aware of your presence in our lives, that we would be unable to keep it to ourselves. That we would have the excitement of an 11-year-old who got slipped some contraband steak and shake. Or got to watch Terminator when mom was away. Lord, that you would use this season in this practice to re-excite our souls for what you are doing. And that we would have the courage to bear witness to your great love. We pray this today in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Amen. Amen.